AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. So Matt, you have a story on a service that helps malware writers improve their software security? Yeah, this one's kind of an interesting one. Um, this comes to us from Krebs on Security. Um, so if you've ever, you know, run your own service or, or written your own code um, and wanted to look for vulnerabilities in it, of course, there are people you can hire to try and find those vulnerabilities for you uh, and try and up the security of what you're doing. Uh, the criminal underworld apparently is no different, and there are people who will do the same thing for you for your malware. So this is especially important for people who are buying malware services or malware from other people because, you know, there's no honor among thieves. Some people will write malware and sell it but include their own back door or include some way to compromise the person they sold it to. So there's all sorts of backstabbing going on. And so if you can pay someone to find those sorts of problems ahead of time as a criminal, you get an advantage and you don't get, um, you know, tricked by somebody you thought you were doing business with. So what we're seeing here is an article uh, again, from Krebs, talking about a particular service, somebody named Red Bear runs this, this underground site where you can do this. You can submit your software to this guy, and he will, for a fee, find the security flaws and uh, find all the little back doors that have been hidden inside of it, which is kind of interesting. So much the way that you would see uh, a white hat uh, security researcher finding vulnerability in somebody else's software and then sharing that with them and then eventually you know, publishing a blog post saying, you know, here's how smart I am, I found this security flaw. They do the same thing and they'll, you know, they'll, they'll post about high-profile malware tools that they found flaws in or they found backdoors in as a way of sort of selling it. Uh, and Krebs goes into the history of this service, the people involved, which is, you know, these usual sleuthing, but I found it most interesting the fact that this guy exists. Uh, and does this for a living. He's basically the, the one-man bug bounty or the one-man pen tester for a whole bunch of different uh, criminal enterprises and their software. Yeah, I, I, uh, I thought it was interesting. Uh, you mentioned like the responsible disclosure, right? Where uh, if he found a bug, he wouldn't actually uh, disclose until the malware was patched, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and like you said, it, it's software, right? So all, all the similar pipelines and tools that are available, I wonder if, if you know, they use static code analysis and fuzzing, right? And regression tests, right? To, to improve what, you know, the quality of their software. So it's definitely an interesting article. Um, and just again, to show you a software is software, right? You need to make sure that there's no vulnerabilities and bugs or they'll get exploited, um, you know, by, by, uh, by someone else. I think it might be interesting. I wonder if uh, the guy who runs the the site, Red Bear, is actually some people may give them back his code that he has sold to people in malware and might actually have to review his own code. I wonder if stuff like that comes up because I know a lot of these bots and malware are probably sold on the market to be used. So anyway, I thought it was a really interesting article. If you guys want more details on you know this service itself and the folks involved in it, which is, you know, also an interesting read. I recommend you go over to Krebs' site and check it out. So, Mike, I hear you have a story about how compromised supercomputers were used in crypto mining. Yeah, Chris, uh, a bunch of interesting kind of details in this one. Uh, so, like you mentioned, uh, you know, focuses on supercomputers and about a dozen of them across uh, Europe. Uh, have had their access disabled to the due to various uh, security incidents. So, supercomputers, uh, you know, powerful hardware-based clusters used for more, you know, scientific uh, mathematical modeling, 
and they tend to be more open, right? Uh, to promote collaboration and, and sharing across the community. Uh, so on May 11th, um, the UK National Supercomputing Service, known as Archer, uh, put out an announcement they were disabling logins due to some uh, exploitation of their login servers. Uh, they basically posted that they're going to require passwords and SSH keys to be reset whenever a service is restored. Uh, following that week, a total of about nine different supercomputing projects in Germany announced similar incidents that were affecting their clusters. They were disabling access. And then on Saturday, uh, the Swiss Center for Com uh, Scientific Computing, again, reported something very similar. So there's this European grid infrastructure, uh, which basically links a lot of these different advanced computing efforts across Europe. And they put on advisory uh, for two of the compromises with some details, uh, which appear uh, to link to the same actor. Uh, so basically, uh, SSH credentials were compromised. Uh, they were used to laterally move across these clusters and, like you said, install uh, this Monero crypto mining, uh, but, but various, various resources are kind of related to that. Uh, their CSERT team, the EGI, uh, put out a report. Um, they found that one of the miners was only uh, running at night to try to avoid being detected. And they found that, you know, there were various resources deployed. There were miners, there were hosts, uh, there were proxies, there were tunneling hosts. And the uh, CSERT report actually has a bunch of IOCs for the IP addresses and also for the uh, file system paths for the various malware. CrowdStrike also published some Yara rules uh, for the two malware binaries that get compiled on the systems. Uh, they show you the paths are kind of hidden in these font directories. Uh, they mentioned that they're both the exact same or similar binaries. So I don't know if one is maybe just there for a backup in case one gets removed. Um, still a lot of investigation. Uh, a lot of these systems are still not online, um, still recovering. And, you know, given the scale, given kind of these common targets, uh, it seems a little too coincidental that they're not all linked, but, you know, kind of still to be determined. Uh, so, yeah, what do you guys think? It's really interesting uh, kind of scenario, set of targets, and, uh, you know, um, everybody focused on, you know, again, these, these crypto miners. If you're trying to run uh, something computationally expensive like crypto mining, you could do worse than a super supercomputer. Um, that's really interesting, though. I mean, the fact that they do things to try and hide it makes me think it's a little bit more than just some of the um, opportunistic attacks that we've seen before. Like we see plenty of bots that scan across the internet for common open ports and try and exploit those, and then drop a crypto miner on whatever they can get on. Um, if the vulnerability is in this Archer platform, which I'm, I'm not personally familiar with, then maybe they took some time and developed some kind of custom exploit, or maybe they found some way to fish in for access. Um, but yeah, that's definitely interesting. Yeah, I know crypto mining is not only um, a big issue with supercomputers, but also just unsecure uh, cloud resources. So similar to kind of like this kind of attack where attackers would try to compromise cloud resources and use those in a crypto mining attack as well. Right. I mean, they mentioned, you know, they're obviously going to reset credentials. You know, this is a little, a little difficult, right? Because the, you know, these communities tend to be more open, right? Um, so access is international, you know, you have remote terminal services. So, um, you know, kind of difficult to, um, you know, fully secure these uh, from say specific whitelist IP addresses. Uh, I don't know if there's anything they can do for, you know, multi-factor, um, you know, it gets a little difficult probably to coordinate that, you know, again, kind of internationally across different universities and different countries. 
Um, but, you know, they'll probably look at, at ways they can increase their security, uh, you know, going forward to try to prevent this in the future. You know, there are quite a few technical details here in some of these blogs. I'm going to have to spend some time and dig through them. This is interesting. Yep. Thanks for bringing this one to us. Yep. Thanks, guys. So, Chris, um, sounds like you've got a story about Firebase, which I've heard is really helpful for creating new Android apps, but it's kind of uh, the devil is in the details. What can you tell us? Yes. So, unfortunately, the vulnerability surrounding this Firebase database is a very common vulnerability, and that's a simple misconfiguration. A lot of these app developers were building their uh, mobile apps and even web apps to use the Firebase backend database. However, they weren't securing it with any credentials or authentication or access tokens. So this was leaving this vulnerable to a lot of brute force attacks, because an attacker would just be able to query the project ID of the Firebase database, which is a global unique identifier. So these unauthenticated databases are vulnerable to simple REST API calls. As an attacker, you can brute force the project ID, which is a unique global identifier of the database, and you can take the domain firebaseio.com, which you can find easily on Google Firebase's uh, documentation. And if you suffix that with a dot JSON, you can query unauthenticated databases and steal a lot of user data, such as emails, usernames, location data, chat history, and uh, private passwords. Oh, that's really something. So, and I'm reading this article from Comparatech, and it sounds like they did a good amount of research into figuring out just how big this exposure was, and it seems to be sizable. Um, but they also provide some good recommendations for people who are developers and, and ways to make sure this doesn't actually happen, which is good. Yes, yeah, so um, the security research firm uh, found that about 4.8% of these mobile apps using Firebase were not properly secured and that these apps were downloaded about 4 billion times. So there's a good chance if you're an Android user, you might have been, your user data might have been compromised. And Firebase is a pretty popular backend, so it's used for uh, iOS, Android, and, uh, and um, Node.js web apps. From what I'm seeing here, they're not going to list the applications that were affected, uh, specifically because they, they can't guarantee that they, the developers will ever take this data down, which is an interesting point. Um, I mean, most of the time you think if somebody finds a problem, you share it with them, and they're willing and, and listen, to listen, and they'll, they'll take it down quickly. But sometimes you just don't get a response when you do some sort of notification like that. And there's been situations like that where we've, we've notified people of a problem, and we've gotten either very little response or no response, and sometimes the problems didn't get fixed at all. So I kind of understand that. What do you think, yeah. uh, what do you think yeah. Mike? Yeah, so, uh, you know, Firebase, I guess it's GCP hosted, right? So it's a, uh, you know, one of these PaaS platform as a service um, where you're responsible, right, for securing. And Chris, you went through all the different options you have. Um, and we see this in other providers, things like, you know, we've done a ton of stories on you know, S3 buckets, right? Uh, and, and how there, you know, you can, um, a similar brute force enumerate S3 buckets. Did it say um, if the project ID uh, is available via the app somehow, right? You're able to kind of expose that, or is it is it more a brute force kind of traditional, just enumerate across, um, you know, the REST API? 
they did mention in the article that some of these project IDs were searchable with through uh, the Bing search engine. So an attacker might just be able to do a quick search on these and find the project IDs and just do a simple REST API call to grab this data. Yeah, that certainly makes it easier, right? When you kind of know what that your you know, URI is, right? That you can uh, that you can look up. But again, like you said, it's I'm sure there's more, right? The ones that aren't exposed. You know, if you had that URL, you just append what you said .json, and you know you can see what you hit. All right, guys, let's take a look at this week's internet weather. So this week's top ten most probed ports. These are the ports that we see the most scanning traffic to. And you can see there's not a, not a lot of them that changed this week. Um, the one that I highlight we'll get to in a second, but we'll run through them. Uh, first place is uh, TCP 23, that's Telnet. After that is port 445, TCP, that's uh, SMB. After that, 80 ICMP, which is ping, followed by 1433 TCP, which is uh, MS SQL Server. 22 TCP is SSH, 81 TCP is a web port, but we also see it associated with particular IoT devices. Um, 443 TCP is SSL or TLS. Uh, 3389 is remote desktop protocol. 8291 TCP has moved up four spots, um, which is interesting. We will take a look at that later. And then rounding out the top 10 is 80 TCP, which is plain old web traffic. I'm curious to know what port 8291 is. It's a new one for me. 8291 is at the top of the list for most sources probing. And in fact, it did not change. So last week, it was also at the top of the list. So this is an interesting one. Uh, you can see that for the most part, this list didn't move very much either. Um, 443 moved up two spots. Um, there's a couple ports that also from last week were, were fairly high up. 8728 is notable. We'll talk about that a little bit too. Uh, 8080 is another alternate web port. 53 UDP is DNS. Uh, but again, not a lot of movement this week. So 8291, Microtik Winbox. We have talked about this on the show in the past. Um, it looks like we had massive spac spikes, massive SPACs. We did have uh, significant spikes back around 420, 421, um, and we're seeing some spikes again, not nearly on the same level, but you know, it is a significant uptick. We had a dead zone here from about the 24th of April back through about the 9th of May. Um, so it is returning. There is a population of scanners out there that's interested in it. Um, I did a little more research to try and guess what this might all be. Um, there was a bug from 2018 that I know we talked about on the show previously, but I did also find a very interesting write-up from Tenable uh, talking about a chain of different exploits in Microtik devices that involve Winbox as a starting point. Uh, actually kind of neat little uh, tricks that they were using uh, to try and force the box to make DNS requests to poison their DNS to then replace the update function, no, to, to, to point them at a new server for their updates and then force downgrade them to a version of Microtik um, Winbox. And that downgrade force, whenever you use this particular downgrade or upgrade, I forget what it is, but it actually resets all the creds on the box to default. You can basically over the internet force a box's credentials to the default to then log into it, which is a pretty sweet uh, attack chain, honestly. So. If you're interested in that kind of thing, I really think you should read that blog. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, the 8291 port is a new one for me also. Um, I also saw that 8728 is, was also mm -hmm. um, was on the scanning chart. Is that somehow related to 
this port 8291? I, I think I should let you do my transitions from here on out because the very next thing <laughs> I was about to talk about is 8728 TCP, which is the Microtik API port. And if you, if you jump back and forth between my slides, you will notice that these peaks line up almost exactly with each other. To me, that says this is the same exact population scanning. You know, there may be some changes, some small deviations here, but those, those don't just line up by accident. So uh, it is a huge botnet, significant number of hosts across the internet. I wouldn't say it's tied to any one reason, but Microtech is a pretty popular brand of uh, small home and office router. So that kind of makes sense. Um, there might be more than one vulnerability in play, or there may be more than one way of scanning for this device. We've seen situations where someone will scan for a port just to identify that they're, they're looking at the kind of device they want to attack and then pivot to an entirely different port once they've confirmed that that's the device they want. Because like you could scan the entire internet for port 80 all day uh, and you could waste your time looking at every single web service that's there. Or if your device has something running on some obscure port, you scan for the obscure port and then you, you save yourself a lot of time. So what this all means right now, I'm not sure. I can't say for certain which vulnerabilities are being exploited here. Uh, but somebody's interested in these ports. And hopefully sometime the next week we can set something up and maybe we'll be lucky enough to catch some of this traffic and understand it better. Yeah, I wonder if this trend will continue or if we'll see another lull, you know, kind of like you reported there for, you know, a few weeks, um, mm -hmm. you know, or if this will continue for, you know, amount of time. So the last one we've got this week is an interesting one. It's port 60001 TCP, which is related to MyPower DVRs. There's apparently a service running on this port called MyPowerDVR JAWS, and the SANS Internet Storm Center had a write-up about a vulnerability uh, on this particular port. So at this point, that's what I think this is. Uh, you can see for the last month or so, there's been a little bit of a, a noise floor of scanning and then a couple of spikes, but no, um, no real interest in it until just recently. And uh, it looks like on the 16th, we hit a spike of a couple hundred scan sources an hour. So this might be another one to keep an eye on. Uh, it seems to have sort of tailed off already, um, but at least somebody at least tasked a significant number of boxes to scan for this at this point. So pretty interesting always to, to see these sorts of devices that I had never heard of MyPower DVR before. Uh, so it was good to read about it, learn a little bit about a new uh, possibly vulnerable device. And if you have one of these things, probably take a look at it and figure out if you can patch it too. Yeah, another another interesting one, right? So a new new device to me also. Um, you know, you probably tend to see these come and go, right? These devices get exploits. You see this spike, falls off. You know, next one comes along later. So it's kind of this this trend of, of obscure devices that have vulnerabilities, right? What that ends up looking like from a, a scanning perspective. And that's the internet weather. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Matt. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.